Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Mikhail Scuderu, a labor economist at the University of Waterloo and director of the Canadian Labor Economics Forum. He's a leading thinker and scholar on, among other things, the labor market dynamics of immigration. I'm grateful to speak with him about growing calls on the federal government to increase immigration levels and how we ought to think about the labor market effects of Canada's immigration policy as well as outcomes for immigrants themselves. Mikkel, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you very much for having me, Sean. We're having this conversation on November 11th, which is less than two weeks after the federal government announced its immigration intake targets for the next three years. The plan is to reach 500,000 annual newcomers by 2025. Mikkel, before we get into some of the specifics, including the composition of Canada's annual intake of immigrants, can you place the target in a broader context? How does it compare to the recent past or even pure jurisdictions? Yeah, so, you know, with a lot of economics data, we, we tend to, you know, in the, in the popular discussion, focused on, on the big numbers, the overall levels. Like in this case, we're going to have 1.4 uh, million immigrants over the next three years. I, I wouldn't do that. I mean, the, the Canadian population is, is growing all the time. So you would expect that the number of immigrants coming in and the absorptive capacity of the economy to grow. So I think the number that matters is what is the immigration intake as a percentage of the existing population? And when you measure that, we are going to reach rates of immigration that we have not seen in the past seven decades, and at least as far back as I have been, been able to collect data on. I think probably the number was higher in the in the late 1800s, but uh, that was a very different type of economy. So, you know, not only historically in Canada, but also when we compare ourselves to other countries, this is really reaching levels that are unprecedented, and there just isn't much experience to learn from. It's important to note that this target reflects Canada's permanent immigration stream, but we also permit large numbers through temporary streams, such as student visas, temporary foreign workers, and so on. How does the overall immigration picture look? What share, for instance, Mikkel, enters the country through the permanent stream versus temporary programs? That's a great question, Sean, that, that gets overlooked far too often, is that there are these two distinct streams of, of workers, students coming into the country to contribute to the economy. Um, you know, it's complicated. The, the, temp the biggest difference between these two streams really is that the temporary stream doesn't have a target. There's no fixed quota from year to year. There's no cap or limit. It's driven by whatever the demand for students are and, and workers. Um, 
The other thing that complicates the, the answer to your question is that they are not sort of mutually exclusive groups. So increasingly, Canada has moved towards what we call two-step migration, where the source of the new permanent residents are the temporary residents that are already here on Canadian soil. So like counting these people as disjoint groups is, is really impossible. But it is true what you said, that in any given year, if we count the, the inflow of temporary residents, that that far exceeds the number of new permanent residents. But many of them, roughly, actually, we, we know what percentage, that in the long run, about a third of those temporary residents now will become permanent residents. The demand for more immigration in general, and temporary workers in particular, comes from the argument that Canada faces labor market shortages. The basic idea is intuitive. Our domestic labor supply isn't growing for domestic reasons, and so we need more workers to come from somewhere. Yet you've argued that this isn't quite the right way to think about our economic challenge for two reasons. First, it distorts the bargaining power of workers, particularly low-skilled workers. And second, it distorts business decisions about capital and labor. Mikhail, do you want to elaborate on why we're wrong to see immigration as an economic silver bullet? John, I, I'm not sure I can do any better than the way you just described it, to be honest with you. Um, so I, I think the way I teach this, I teach a lot of labor economics, and in recent years, I've been teaching Econ 101, is I think it's completely wrong to think about labor demand, that is like the job vacancies and the, and the slots that need to be filled, as something that's just kind of determined outside the economic system, as if it just gets handed to us from heaven and the job of policymakers is just to plug these holes. You know, labor demand and what jobs are done in a country is determined by a lot of things, but in large part, it's determined by what the labor supply is. So, you know, you don't have to look around countries that long and, and to see that, you know, the types of jobs and the way jobs are done is very different. If, if you go to Florida, where I, my in-laws live, and I, I reluctantly spend more time than I wish I did, <laughs> um, you want to get your car washed on Florida. What happens is you drive into a parking lot and you get five human beings that come out with rags and, and clean the car by hand. You get your car washed in Canada, it's inevitably a machine that does it with no human labor. That, that reflects, it's not like a random coincidence, that reflects the availability of, of lower skilled workers in Florida, of a, of a porous border, really. Um, you know, another example is the wine industry in California. When they harvest their grapes, they, they in California, it's done overwhelmingly by, by humans picking grapes with their hands. If you go to Australia, there are very few human beings harvesting grapes. They're done by machines. You go to Norway, where my dad's family's from, try to find a fast food restaurant. It's pretty hard. And that reflects that low-skilled labor isn't there. Minimum wage is really high. It's so expensive to hire. It's just So the point is only, on lots of examples, but the point is only, you know, if you want a lower-skilled economy with low wages, if that's where you want to kind of allow businesses to expand and be successful is by providing them with this low-skilled labor, then, then you certainly you should target lower-skilled workers in your immigration program. But as Canada has done for many years, if you hope to have a high productivity, high wage economy, um, then the emphasis should be and you should be targeting high skilled workers. And, and I think Canada's, you know, the, like the huge public support for we saw some knees, recent numbers for, for Canadian immigration uh, in the public it, it is overwhelmingly reflects the success of the system. And in my view, that reflects the success of, of selecting, you know, skilled immigrants 
um, and, and sort of keeping wages up and not increasing the amount of inequality in, in, in the economy by increasing low-skilled workers. A related point is that you frequently made the argument that we're wrong to principally measure the country's economic performance through GDP growth and instead ought to be much more concerned about GDP per capita. Mikhail, let me ask a, a two-part question. First, why does this distinction matter? And two, how might it change Canadian immigration policy? I'm almost tempted to ask the second part first. I, I don't think it, 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 it would change current immigration policy, but not, not where we've been over the past two decades. So, you know, like there are some very significant shifts happening now, in particular towards, you know, prioritizing lower skilled immigrants. Um, that's undone. I had some pushback about a year ago when I suggested that that was happening. There is no question that has happened. Uh, and the, and the changes to the, what's called the express entry system that are coming down the pipeline. We're going to see this in the next few months make it very clear that's what's happening. So, you know, why why is that a concern for a labor economist? And I'm not unique. I mean, I, I'm the director of the, the Canadian Labor Economics Forum. I talk to a lot of labor economists about these issues. You know, we, we all share the same concerns. You know, if, if we think the issue, you know, you hear a lot of rhetoric around the, you know, the economic benefits of immigration, especially from this government. And, and I would say this rhetoric has gotten really quite out of control. Uh, it's, it's becoming absurd. So you, know, you hear the, the, these claims that immigration will increase economic growth. And so then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what, what's economic growth and what are we trying to achieve here? You know, there's no question that when you increase the amount of labor into an economy, more gets produced. As long as some of those workers are doing something, more gets produced. So GDP goes up. The, the, what I, you know, I refer to GDP as like the economic pie. The total economic pie gets bigger. But of course, that's not what matters. You can look around the world and find countries that are bigger, have bigger labor forces, have bigger economic pies than Canada, but they're not what we're aiming for. India, Brazil. I mean, these are bigger economies, but when you divide the economic pie by the population, and and you look at the average size of the average slice, then then you know Canada has a much higher GDP per capita than than India. So that that presumably is more important for economic living standards. That's presumably what we should be targeting. Um, and and the reality is that when you increase immigration from one percent of the population to one point two percent of the population, like we're doing. You know, you're you're increasing the size of the economic pie, but also the number of people you're dividing in between. It's far from obvious to any economist I've ever spoken to in Canada that understands Canadian immigration that the the average slice gets bigger. In fact, even like pro-immigration outfits like the Scotiabank and you know the, the uh, Conference Board of Canada they they have taken stabs at trying to estimate this. Both of them find that increasing immigration rates are going to lower GDP per capita. They don't like to to say that out loud, but that's what their data shows. I, I think their data is probably, there, there are methodologies that, you know, you could criticize, but that's what it shows. So, um, so that, that I think is the concern for economists. What's the rationale then, Mikhail, for these different calls from different organizations to aim to have a national population of 100 million or to see our immigration levels go up even further? What's the inherent economic rationale behind some of those calls to set aside the benefits of cultural diversity and viewpoint diversity and all the rest that comes with immigration. As you say, a lot of these organizations tend to park those 
other types of arguments and in fact principally make economic arguments. And you're saying those arguments aren't as strong as they think they are. Yeah. So, you know, as as you say, there there are really good reasons for immigration. I'm an immigrant. I, I moved to Canada as, you know, as a child, eight years old. I My family settled in Mississauga. I grew up in what I think at the time was probably the most diverse city uh, in Canada. You know, I that this is what I love about Canada is is the cultural diversity. And when we used to talk about immigration and, and why we love immigration in Canada, it was overwhelmingly about multiculturalism. Now, you know, expanding immigration has what economists call distributional effects. There, there are distributional welfare effects. There, there are, to put it crudely, winners and losers. Um, and it's pretty clear who the winners are. I mean, e- e- the winners are, are easy to identify. They're the people who are shouting the loudest to increase uh, immigration rates. And, and so that this is undoubtedly organizations like the, the Century Initiative that is backed by corporate money. Um, so businesses, you know, are clearly better off if there are long lines of workers outside their doors uh, competing with each other to get those skills jobs. Um, you know, immigration lawyers are is another sector of the economy that benefits. Um, immigrant settle service, you know, settlement service providers that teach immigrant new language skills. Again, these these are clearly clearly winners. But there are trade-offs. You know, what what it does what what immigration potentially does to to wages in certain markets, what it does to productivity. There, there are trade-offs. It's not win-win. Um, and and that that is the, really the challenge that nobody wants to talk about. Now now the question is, well, if you're if you're trying to sell immigration to the Canadian public, how do you do it? Well, certainly one way you could do it is is to argue that it increases the cultural richness of the country. But you know, I think there there, there was some point in our history where that narrative changed. And that narrative became much more about these economic benefits. And I, and, you know, I'm, I haven't really talked about this before, but you know, my my gut feeling of what what happened there was, you know, one, it's twofold. One, I think it reflects the fact that we could convince it's a more successful um, way to sell the public on immigration is to say that you know you guys are winners in this proposition, that the, the gains are going to flow to all of us. Um, we're all going to be better off. Everybody's going to be better off. It's it's not an accurate narrative in my view, but that 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 is one way to do it. Let me just jump in there, Mikhail, because I, I think there's a ton of insight. It, it sort of has some parallel to the free trade debates we've seen some places around the world where there's been a tendency to de-emphasize trade-offs. And so when people start to feel those trade-offs, there's a tremendous amount of pushback. It, in a way, it speaks to the importance of being kind of forthright and transparent with the public about those trade-offs. So is in effect to kind of protect the long-term integrity of the system. I, I think that's right. I, I think the other piece, though, that that may have contributed to this shift in a narrative in Canada is that, there, you know, the, the the economics of immigration research is relatively new. It, it started to come out in like the late 80s and 90s saw huge, huge burgeoning of this this literature, especially in Canada, but the U.S. as well. And in the U.S. in particular, the results in the empirical research on the effects of immigration have been quite different than Canada. It's it's much, you know, even when you do comparative studies and you look at like earnings of immigrants, you know, the 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 evidence looks much more favorable for increases in immigration in the US. The US is really exceptional at attracting 
top talent. And if the goal is to leverage immigration to raise, raise GDP per capita, there's no question that that's the margin on which it needs to happen. You need to attract these high human capital people, you know, even innovators, people with new ideas that come up with new technologies. That's the margin. I think we all understand that's where you do it. And the U.S. is phenomenally successful. Part of that is that they have you know, the top ranked, the, the, the most reputable universities in the world, they attract, you know, the cream of the world go to these universities. And then they have a an H-1B system that's very tightly rationed that allows companies to cream skim these, these university programs. Um, any data I've seen, whether you look at patenting or earnings of immigrants, the U.S. does phenomenally well. So if you think about increasing on the margin immigration in the U.S., there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the U.S. does not have high enough immigration levels, that they could be doing better. They could be boosting GDP per capita more. The Canada where our, and mind you, you know, immigration rate in the U.S. is about 0.4%. As I said, we're going up to about 1.2%. It's a huge difference if you think about like the law of diminishing returns. And so, you know, part of the, the narrative in Canada that switched towards these huge economic benefits of immigration is that once again, we're looking to the U.S. literature and we're sort of adopting it at our own and, and forgetting that these marginal effects and benefits are very specific to, to a time and place um, and, and losing sight of that. And so, you know, it sounds like I'm so negative on Canada and immigration. I wish I could be more positive, but that's just like my honest reading of the evidence. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. We've been talking mostly so far about the outcomes stemming from immigration. I want to ask a couple of questions about the outcomes for immigrants themselves. In a 2022 memo for the C.D. Howe Institute, you and a co-author, wrote that notwithstanding efforts to improve the labor market integration of newcomers, they still face serious challenges. You cite, for instance, Statistics Canada on the earnings of international students versus domestic ones. What's going on? What are some of the impediments here? So, Sean, you know, going back a bit, uh, I talked about who the winners and losers of immigration are. And the, if there's any result in the in the empirical literature that points to you know, who, who who experiences adverse effects of increased immigration levels, the, the group that's most likely to be affected are workers who are competing for jobs in the same labor markets as the new immigrants. And that is overwhelmingly in Canada, other recent immigrants. And so, you know, I think part of what attracted me to the, the literature and the economics research in, in immigration is that I'm an immigrant myself. I, you know, I grew up in Mississauga. I, I, you know, overwhelmingly my friend groups were, their parents were immigrants. Um, 
And and so, you know, you see these challenges that new immigrants have and, and, and you, you wonder, you know, how is this changing over time? And the reality is, is when uh, I started getting into this literature, early, literature in the early 2000s, we wrote a paper that was published in the, the Canadian Journal of Economics. That, that, that paper is the, my most cited paper. Um, and, and it was a pretty straightforward paper to do. All we did was we took census data going back two decades into the early 80s. And we just said, let's take a look at how the earnings of new immigrants to Canada compare to Canadian-born workers that are at a similar point in their life cycle and, and look at what that difference is. And what you see is when you go back to immigrants who arrived in the late 60s, early 70s, there was very little gap or difference in the earnings there. But what ended up happening as you go into the late 70s and in the 80s and into the 90s is it was like this massive deterioration in the relative earnings of immigrants. So in the 1990s, if you go back to that period in time and you kind of read the headlines and the whole narrative, it was all about not you know being the top talent and 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 best and brightest then it wasn't about that at all it was all about poverty in immigrant communities and about you know like people with high credentials having driving taxis and that, that that was like in the 90s we were talking about that so what ended up happening is you know there was a, a, a slew of research papers including some that I did that led to a lot of policy changes the you know, it wasn't just the liberal government, the conservative, the Harper government made a lot of changes. I think the most significant one that I think is due to the Harper government was what's called the express entry system, which, you know, it it had a it has a lot going for them. I'm speaking in the past tense because, there's, as I said, there's some changes coming down the road. But it really was very clear about what is the objective. And then it tied the government's hands. And so what you saw was that deterioration leveled off. And in the most recent data, what we're seeing is that new immigrants relative earnings are improving. Um, and that's a very positive thing if you care about immigrants, if you care about their economic well-being, then that's a good news story. And, and so we should learn from that experience. I worry that we're not, and we're moving away from that lesson. One issue that I observe is the intergovernmental asymmetry here. The federal government gets to announce a big sticker number and get support from business groups and those who see high levels of immigration as evidence of Ottawa's commitment to inclusion and so on. And then the provinces and cities are left to effectively operationalize the announcement through infrastructure and service demands. Should we change how the annual intake target is set? And how can we better align the inflow of newcomers with local capacity, including, for instance, housing? These are tough questions, but I, I, you know, it's one of those areas that I get asked about and I, I kind of scratch my head because I don't really get it. And the, the sense of which I don't get it is that, you know, the government, first of all, we have incredibly poor data understanding where immigrants live. You know, like even a simple question, he, he, let me give you an idea of how this works. So when an immigrant fills out their landings form, they say where they're, what their intended occupation is, but also where they in, intend to live. Now, there's nothing keeping them from living somewhere else. This is just saying where they intend to live. Now, the local communities get a lot of funding for settlement services, most importantly, language training from the federal government. That funding is entirely determined, as I understand it, from these numbers where immigrants say where they intend to live. So a lot of immigrants say they intend to live in Kitchener-Waterloo, then the local, what's called the LIPS, the Local Immigrant uh, Partnership uh, System, or they, they will be getting a lot of this funding. 
but we don't really know how many stay. We've also created programs like these provincial nominee programs that allow provinces to nominate immigrants in the hope that if the nominate immigrants who say they're going to stay in, you know, in Halifax or somewhere in the Maritimes, that they'll stay there. And, you know, trying to look in the data, see whether or not they actually do is really hard. What data do you look at? Um, the most compelling evidence I've seen actually looks at health um health insurance, like whether or not they've signed up for OHIP or some other provincial health insurance plan. But, you know, it's not obvious that our efforts to allocate immigrants spatially across cities or provinces through these provincial nominee programs or anything else really are that effective. Immigrants will go where they want to go. That's how we do it in Canada. Not all countries do it that way. Some countries, they tie the immigrant settlement services like language training to the, a particular community. And if they leave that community, they don't get their social assistance or anything else. We don't do it that way in Canada. I would say for good reason. But it means it's really hard to know where these immigrants are going or to kind of influence that through policy levers. Now, as an economist, I would also make an argument that it's not clear to me that we should. You know, markets are good, not good at everything, but they're good at some things. And and mar labor markets and housing markets, they are good um, at allocating workers to where they're most needed, where they're mar where, as we say, their marginal product is highest. And and the way that works is through prices. So I would say, it's, you know, trying too hard to use policy levers to to influence where immigrants live can can backfire and can create misallocation. I would let wages and prices, house prices, play a bigger role in sorting out that, that allocation. Is there a way to think about optimal immigration levels, or is it ultimately some combination of normative considerations and judgment about the absorptive capacity of a society or communities? Yeah, so, you know, I, we, I've been writing a paper um, that we're struggling with, with two other economists on this issue. And we've even pulled in a macroeconomist who doesn't specialize in immigration, but understands economic growth. And the question is precisely this one. Can we say something about what an opt, a country's optimal immigration rate is? By immigration rate, I mean this immigrant inflow as a percentage of the population. Is it 1.2% or is it something higher or something lower? And how would we ever evaluate that? And so, you know, the way we think about this as economists is that a country's output, their GDP is, is driven by some inputs, um, you know, in the aggregate. And the most important inputs are the, the capital input and the labor input. And so what we tend to think is that if you increase the, the, the population or the, the labor input by 1%, and you can also increase simultaneously the capital input by 1%, then probably not much happens to GDP per capita because output just increases by 1% too. So GDP per capita doesn't change at all. If there is a potential, so the, the problem, of course, is why we tend to get, why, you know, the, the tendency for GDP per capita fall is that the capital input doesn't adjust equivalently, commensurately, or proportionally. So you get a 1% increase in the population through immigration, but the capitals, you know, whether it's housing, whether it's, I mean, if you want to get depressed about all of this, take a look at what's happening to 
investment in capital in Canada over the last 10 years. I mean, it's completely flat in the, in the level, not per capita. So the, the amount of capital per worker is falling. So that's what tends to lower productivity. If every worker has less tools, machinery, technology to use, that's not a good thing. That That's not good for GDP per capita. If there's a margin in which we can raise GDP per capita through immigration, it is through the human capital stock, the human capital of immigrants, right? And so the best way to evaluate this is to look at the earnings of immigrants. Two-thirds of GDP are workers' earnings. Let's and So the best way to do is you look, what are the immigrants' earnings when they arrive? And so the, really the, the, the game becomes looking at the immigration rate and, and relating to that to what, what immigrants' earnings are. And here's where things get difficult and more depressing is you know, we have this express entry system that, pri that that ranks immigrants using this score that's called a comprehensive ranking system, CRS. That's how immigrants are selected. And every two, week, the, two weeks, the government at least used to go in and just cream skim that applicant pool and get the folks with the highest CRS. Those, those people with higher CRS, CRS are those with the highest expected earnings, right? So we're trying to pick those high talent, high human capital people with high earnings, um, and we're doing it in a way that we're ranking them and picking the, the ones at the top. Now, what ends up happening, of course, is if you increase the immigration rate, you are forced to make a quality quantity trade-off. You have to go further down the ranking. And so on the margin, that marginal contribution of that last worker hired or, or admitted, rather, is going to have lower earnings. And, and so that's like one important dimension in which you get this kind of law of diminishing returns that the potential to boost GDP per capita through immigration is a lot higher if you're at 0.4% like the U.S. than if you're at 1% of the population. It's a lot. So, so the answer to are we already too high? Well, if you look at immigrants' earnings in Canada, there are big earnings gaps there. That tells me that it may be too high. That does not mean that it's too high on other dimensions. You know, there, as we said, there are other reasons for immigration. There are humanitarian objectives. There are lots of good reasons for immigration. But on the objective of increasing GDP per capita, I, I, I find it hard to believe that increasing the immigration rate from 1.1 to 1.2%, as this government plans to do, is going to raise GDP per capita. The proof will be in the pudding. We'll see how, they go, how it goes. Well, we'll have to have you back on the podcast at that time. Mikhail Skudrud, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. I appreciate the invitation, Sean. Anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.